session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakou, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is Know Thyself, The Science of Self-Awareness by Stephen M. Fleming. Know Thyself. This book had just come out and I caught my eye. Again, one of those judging a book by its cover and title and the bit I can know about it, but um, wanted to see what it's all about. Know Thyself, Stephen Fleming. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Hard to Break by Russell A. Poldrack. Hard to Break, Why Our Brains Make Habits Stick. And um, Russell A. Poldrack, he's a professor of psychology, but also does a lot of work in neuroscience. Um, I think it was a few years ago I read his other book, or in one of his other books, The New Mind Readers. And so in this book, he's looking at habits and also dives deep into the neuroscience of what's going on in our brain when it comes to making habits and as the st- subtitle suggests why they are so hard uh, why do they stick and why are they hard to break and so when we think of habits he talks about this early in the book we tend to think very often of bad habits um, things that we do that are not good including things like addiction but also how we eat and how we uh, do some unhealthy behaviors Sometimes we'll also think of good habits like exercising regularly, reading regularly, or whatever it is that we do regularly. But really, they're not um, all good or all bad. And by the way, I can hear my own voice sounds a little bit different today. I've had some pretty bad allergies this um, weekend and still feel a little bit congested. So even that might affect how I feel in my habits of doing the show. Let's see how that goes. Um, But when we look at habits... If we just think of them as all good or all bad, we're missing really what is the reality, which is that habits are just a big part of how we live our lives every day. Um, We're constantly acting using habits. We might not even be aware of them, but the way you get ready every day. Most people have a routine, and that is a habit. They start doing one part of it, and the next part seems to follow after that, and they, they go step by step. A book I read, I forgot which one it was, but I heard the author talking about if you track individuals uh, and see what they do, like if you had some kind of a GPS, you would see that day to day they almost take uh, the same, even almost the same steps in their house, that it's that similar. We get so um, routinized and, and do things in habits. So it's not that habits are good or bad, it's just part of our being. And if we actually understand it, it's necessary to have habits or we can understand why we would have habits because it would be overwhelming to have to think about every decision to have to think through what to do every moment it can be better to have habits and so 
this actually reminds me of how we sometimes think of the unconscious and uh, because I think of Freud and when his theory of the unconscious became popular when he developed it, the unconscious was thought to be this dark place with all our impulses and desires and these bad things that we want to do but society would not let us do very likely because he developed theories during the Victorian era where there was a lot of suppression of um, desires which continues now but is even stronger then so it would make sense that what was being revealed by his patients was very much these darker parts but what we know is that the unconscious is actually just everything that we don't have in our mind consciously a lot of it is actually quite good some of it's probably neutral but it's not that it's bad and I think that's usually what people think when you hear unconscious you think these dark deep bad things that are inside your head but it's not that we have to have a unconscious because if we only could keep what we could keep conscious we wouldn't be able to hold as much as we can hold in our brains so similarly our habits are not just we should look at them as good or bad they're just the ways that our brain is simplifying things or over time brains have learned to simplify things so they don't have to think things through all the way every time and early in the book he also discussed this distinction that has um, been made by uh, some people who study habits which is uh, you know we have to decide when do we want to keep a habit and when do we want to lose it so this creates something that's been described the stability plasticity dilemma by neuroscientist Steven Grossberg the stability plasticity dilemma so it can make sense that if you always did something a certain way and it worked but one time it didn't well depending on how bad it didn't work or what happened you wouldn't want to necessarily change doing things just because one time it didn't work while at the same time you want to be open you want to have that plasticity open to incorporating the new experiences into what you do so this creates this dilemma that has to be reconciled when do you keep doing things the same way and when do you change and so this relates to habits so we can see that habits can be good to have that stability because most of the time especially in our evolutionary past things did not change that much so it can make sense to have routines while at the same time sometimes you want to change them because new information things do change at the same time as they might not change that much there is change and so you want to be ready to adapt to that as well so that's some of the uh, framework or gives us some understanding of what we even mean when we're talking about habits and one very important thing in William James who was considered like a father of American psychology but he talked about habits and how he was very I think uh, ahead of his time in a lot of things he said but uh, how we have habits and a person can either have their habits work for them or work against them so yes we have so many habits but I think he was specifically talking about there are things we can do that are good for our health and well-being that become habits or we can do bad things and those become habits so you can have a habit of going to exercise after work or you can have a habit of going to have ice cream after work and they both can become habits that will be hard to break but if you consciously create the healthier ones those will stick and then you will keep on doing those healthy things now as I mentioned he gets into the neuroscience of um, habits and, and different aspects of it one 
a neurotransmitter or neuromodulator that gets a lot of uh, publicity in general, you'll see, and he talks about how it's become this big thing, is dopamine. And so he was talking about how dopamine is something that gets there's books written about it, as there should be. It's a lot going on, but at times it gets a, a very large um, role is assigned to it when oftentimes it doesn't, but it does play a role in habits and habit formation. Now, to begin with, some people think of dopamine as a pleasure chemical uh, because we think of drugs and you hear that drugs are related to dopamine and we think, well, when someone um, is experiencing a drug, if they take a drug, they are going to have a lot of dopamine flooding their brain. And first of all, that might not be true itself. It's hard to measure these things so precisely, but it does seem, he talks about in the book, that it's not that drugs necessarily flood your brain with so much more dopamine that naturally gets released. It might be that it keeps it there longer. So it might be that your neurons will be exposed to dopamine longer than normal, not necessarily that so much is released at any one time. But also when it comes to habit formation, it appears that dopamine plays a critical role in making neurons fire together. So there's something, uh, a phrase you maybe have heard before, neurons that fire together, wire together, which means that when neurons are firing at the same time or around the same time, they start to create these networks that make it easier for them to then respond or for them to get activated. And so this is a way, like almost like a habit within the brain. It's that these neurons fire together, then they are wired together, meaning they fire together more likely later on. But as he explains, it's not always the case, depending on the neurons we're talking about. Often, if dopamine is not present, even if the neurons fire together, they don't wire together. So he kind of adds a little twist to that, that it's neurons that fire together in the presence of dopamine, those wire together. And neurons that fire together without dopamine will not wire together. So um, we see that dopamine does play a critical role uh, in habit formation. What I thought was interesting is that uh, he said, I think that only around 600,000 neurons in the brain are dopamine neurons, which is sounds like a lot, 600,000, but when you consider the brain has something like 100 billion neurons, um, it's not so many. And so we actually, the dopamine does seem to play more of a role than you would think just based on how much of it there is in the brain. And so, yeah, he gets into looking at different types of how habits form and the differentiation between a habit uh, versus a goal directed or when we intentionally do something. Now, one of the things that makes habits hard to break is something called stacking, which means that often once you start one part of the habit, it sees itself all the way through, even if the goal at the end has changed or things have changed. So for example, your nightly routine, let's say you're brushing your teeth, you probably do it the same way every time. Let's say grabbing your toothbrush, maybe putting a little water on it, then putting the toothpaste on and you start to brush and you have your routine. And once you start the first step of that routine, it can be hard to stop it even if things have changed. Again, so this is where habits can serve us because we can't think of every decision. But unfortunately, even if the situation has changed, the goal that in, intended to be achieved by this um, set of actions has changed or something has changed within that, we still will carry it out 
all the way through. So that's the problem. The stacking happens and also the cues. So if something cues or triggers a habit, it can be very hard for us to resist going all the way through. And people have probably experienced this when you have something like a craving. Oftentimes it's been triggered by something. And once something in your environment triggers it with that cue, it can be very hard to to break that. And so in the book, you know, it's an interesting account going into different parts of the brain and how they're related to habit and habit formation and how we can differentiate between a habit and goals. Also, when we talk about habits, something that comes up often is this term self-control or willpower. Um, And often if people are not good at breaking a habit or having a hard time breaking a habit, they can tell themselves, oh, I have no willpower. Or people will say, you have no willpower or self-control. But it seems that we give too much emphasis on self-control and willpower as something that is just easy to have. And if you have it, you should be able to change things and that it's not so simple. Now, there does seem to be some genetic component into how people discount future pleasures or future rewards compared to present rewards. So um, this is the classic, uh, maybe you've heard of the marshmallow test where they've done with kids where a simplified version of explaining it is you show a child a marshmallow and you say, okay, I'm going to leave this marshmallow here. I'm going to go for five minutes. And if in that five minutes you don't eat this one marshmallow, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. So it's testing if they can delay gratification. And so there does seem to be some evidence that people might be different in their ability to make the future reward seem very good, or the opposite would be to discount the future reward. And the less you discount the future reward, the better you'll be at waiting for that bigger reward down the line. Now, I'm at a commercial break, but I want to add a few more minutes about Uh, this book about the second half of the book, he gets into some ideas and research looking at how to try to break habits or what the science is showing us. So I'll continue after the break on Hard to Break by Russell A. Poldrak. We'll be right back. back continuing the discussion on the book hard to break by russell a poldrack hard to break why our habits why our brains make habits stick um and some thoughts i had about habits during the break so you know seeing how they can simplify things for us when i start the show um i have a intro that i say practically the same every time and it's helpful because once I started, I could just kind of say it in autopilot and don't have to think too much as I'm settling into starting the show. And over the course of the coming on eight years of doing the show, I've changed some parts of it, but it's actually um, hard to change a habit when it's even something simple like this. And so oftentimes when I've changed it, at times I'll say it the old way for a while or if I'm a little bit stressed or distracted, I might go back to that old way of saying it. But it's interesting to be seeing how um, I can get frazzled or something will distract me in the moment and it'll be harder for me to continue. Something kind of breaks that chain, the stacking that's that's happening. So um, 
an indication again that we have so many habits that we might not even be aware of how they simplify our lives but how we might go into autopilot without realizing we're doing so and um, also about habits and related to addiction um, we, we see how important things like cues are things can trigger it and this is actually why uh, I remember you probably remember as well uh, more in the 80s and 90s maybe also early 2000s but when you'd see anti-drug ads it sometimes would have drug paraphernalia in the, the the ads or actual drugs or things like pipes or things that were used for the drugs as it talked about not using them but they learned that these ads actually could make people who were addicts or who were recovering who were sober to relapse or to trigger a relapse because seeing the drugs or seeing the things they would use to get high could make them want to use again. It would trigger, it would be that cue. So they, they started to do that less to put those cues in there, those potential triggers for some individuals. And also uh, when it comes to drug use and the cues and this whole uh, habit system that goes into place, so anything we put into our body, especially something that has a big effect, the body will counteract whatever that is. And that's why when you are coming down from any kind of drug, you will start to feel the opposite of that. Or if you take caffeine, which most of us do, when you start coming off of that caffeine, you'll feel the opposite effects. So you'll feel even more tired. Now, caffeine has this added part that because the caffeine is blocking the adenosine in the brain which signals to the brain that you're tired once those molecules are gone there's even more um, adenosine so it gets flooded by it so it could be even exaggerating that type of effect but nonetheless the brain is counteracting or the body is counteracting whatever the drug is doing and this is something you have to be careful about when you're withdrawing from any drug that it can have those effects but even when you take a small amount that's what's going on now what can happen related to this that I, I was bringing up now is people who overdose, unfortunately, oftentimes people will overdose when they use in a new location because what can happen is they'll use the same amount they normally use, but because they're in a different place, their body will have counteracted less. So saying it the other way, where they usually use, once they get to that place and they start the process of whatever they do to use the substance, their body will already start to counteract the, the, the effect of what's going on or will be more ready to do so. But now that when they're in a new location, that won't happen as strongly and sadly they might overdose using the same amount of the drug that they normally use in a different location. And so uh, there was a whole chapter in the book on addiction. And when you talk about hard to break, addiction is uh, definitely one of those extremes when we talk about bad habits that sadly can be very, very hard to break. And um, we have to recognize that it's not about willpower and self-control. It's much more complicated than that. And that's something I, I felt in the book when he was talking about habits in general. Um, and overall, this notion that think of it as just willpower and self-control is not really true. And actually, if we want to break habits, what you want to do is recognize, understand what's causing them, the creation of them in the brain, and then look at what you can do 
to counteract that. And so I'll get to a few of the, uh, as I mentioned, the end of the book gets more into things you can do to try to overcome your habits or to change them. And he talks about how trainings of self-control, you might hear about them. There are, uh, I'm sure, courses, but also things like apps or programs that you can do that will claim to improve your self-control. But as he describes, the research doesn't seem to show that we can really do that to build your your self-control and willpower. So it doesn't seem to be the case. But he does outline in uh, one of the last chapters different things that have been found in science and the research to help us understand how to change our behavior, how to change habits. And so here are those things he describes. Um, so he says, first, we want to look closely at the environment um, to better understand the situations that trigger the unwanted behavior. So um, again, the triggers are very important because once the habit gets triggered and you start that process, it can be very hard to break. So look at your environment to better understand the triggers. Also, you want to change the choice architecture to minimize habit triggers and promote wanted behavior. So um, he talks in the book, a classic called uh, the book called Nudge. He described how they're showing in that book how small changes in how we make decisions can affect the things that we decide. And our behavior, the same thing is true. So we're seeing these first two, looking at the cues, making it easier to make the right decisions. It's not about willpower, about, okay, if you are strong enough, you can resist the urge, or if you do this uh, type of thinking, you'll avoid any kind of temptation. That doesn't seem to at all be the, the way to really make behavior change when we understand habit. We want to look at what's going on because they're so hard to break, we want to put the effort into make it easier on us not to start the process. Uh, another thing he talks about is having a detailed plan for how you're going to make the change. So if you just say, I'm going to stop smoking, that's a good goal or a good thing to want to do. But without a plan, it can be very hard to do. So ta he talks about how we can... Um, uh, you know, come up with a detailed plan, but also if-then rules and things that we will do in a specific situation. So I think you had an example. If your friend Tina offers you a cigarette, what would you say to her? If that's someone, let's say, that offers you cigarettes. And so you have a plan that if she offers me a cigarette, I'll say, oh, no, thank you. I'm trying to stop. And so it really helped me if you um, did not offer me a cigarette. So you want to have a detailed plan. He talks about research showing that that can be helpful and also what you're going to do in certain situations. So again, it's not just saying be able to resist it or go to the party where they serve alcohol and if you're trying to stop drinking and just control yourself or tell yourself you don't need it. You have to set yourself up for success rather than just risking that you can figure it out on your own. And then the last one he mentions here is closely monitoring, monitoring your progress towards the goal and changing the plan when it's not working. So when they've done some research on things like weight loss, for example, they found that individuals who uh, create a plan, but then also who are monitoring their progress, they're more likely to succeed or to, to, to do well with it. So he gives some of those uh, more tangible types of advice based on the research looking at behavior change to help us 
understand how we can help ourselves. And so, you know, a big takeaway in the book overall is this um, idea that habits are very hard to break. And if you look at how hardwired they become in the brain, first we just understand it makes sense for the brain to want to make some behaviors or many behaviors habits because it doesn't want to have to think everything through every single time. And so because of that, habits, habits stick and can be very hard to break. And so because of that, we want to be mindful of what we do because um, it's very hard to change a bad habit, but it's much easier to begin by forming good habits. And so we might think our behaviors, one thing here or there doesn't matter, and they don't matter that much. One individual action rarely does. But you want to consider the habits that you are creating, that if this is something I do now and then it makes it easier for me to keep doing it, then it can become very hard to break, hard to stop. If you get addicted to cigarettes, it's very hard to smoke. Now, it doesn't mean the only possible solution is abstinence from everything. That doesn't work. But it's something to keep in mind in what you are choosing to do. And habits are very hard to break, but we can be very intentional in the things we start to do knowing that if we consistently can get ourselves to start doing something, then it'll turn into a good habit. So if you, for example, start doing a routine of a morning walk, something I've done different times where I walk every morning, well, then I, I start to think about it even the night before. When I wake up, it becomes part of something I'm going to do almost automatically. But the first few days, it can be much harder. So we have to think about the habits that we are creating and to recognize we're constantly creating habits. Going back to this uh, stability plasticity dilemma, our brain is plastic, meaning that it's constantly changing. Your brain today is different, probably in small ways, but different from the brain you had a week ago and definitely from a year ago. I'm not saying literally a whole different brain, but there's going to be differences in how it, it processes things, how it's connected to different parts of itself, and all those things will have an impact. So you want to be deliberate in what you are doing, recognizing that the steps you take can either be in a good direction or a bad direction. As William James talked about, that your habits can either serve you or they can hurt you, but they will be there. There isn't this sense that I can just do anything and it's not going to really affect me long term because I'll make different decisions later on. Even I invite you to think about different times in your life when you had different habits. You might think of 20 years ago and you were in college and you were reading almost every day, let's say, or another period of life when you're doing really unhealthy things and it seems so hard to break. And if you have been in any kind of a down part in your life, it might even be harder to break. But we recognize that we get into these places that can be really good or really bad, and you will have your ups and downs in life, so it won't be that you're always going to get it right, but making sure that we're taking deliberate steps to go in the right direction, not in the wrong direction. And on top of that, I think it's helpful to enlist the help of others, because when you recognize how powerful habits are, we can see that, yes, the, the adage and this mindset of, self-control and willpower and you should yourself be able to do anything and yes in most things we are on our own and we have to be able to figure out by ourselves but we can get help and support from others 
we can recognize that if I'm left to my own devices, I might not make the best choices. The short-term feeling might feel too strong in the moment. I might not be able to overpower it. How can I enlist the help of loved ones around me to help me do something better to do and make the right decisions? Even to me, when we think of um, AA and 12-step programs, the first step involves uh, believing or giving up you know, your power to, or giving into the higher power. And to me, yes, this can definitely mean God for a lot of people. But the way I also see it is that when someone has uh, an addiction, when you get to that point when you have an addiction, you essentially have completely knocked out of balance. For everyone, habits are tough. But even more, it becomes so hard for you to make the right choices, especially when it comes to your drug of choice or behavior of choice, whatever it might be that you are addicted to. And so I think the higher power isn't just necessarily God or some kind of spiritual thing. It's recognizing that I need another power to help make decisions for me because I can't trust myself to make the right decisions. Once our radars have gotten so far off, unfortunately, it can be almost impossible to fully get them right back to being accurate the way that they could have been from the beginning. So to me, that higher power is essentially saying, I'm recognizing that when it comes to this drug or this substance or this behavior, I am powerless. I am powerless to trust myself to make the right decisions. So I do need the help and support of others from this group to a sponsor. And I have to do lots of things to try to make this change. But I'm recognizing I can't trust myself alone to make the right decisions. And I think for all of us, even if you don't have something that could be diagnosed or categorized as an addiction, we all have behavioral choices that we make that we struggle with. And they might not hugely affect your life, but they'll have impacts. And so I think helping one another can be helpful in this. It brings up these issues of having the freedom to choose what to do, being autonomous. But I think that if you're asking someone to help you in making those decisions or helping you keep you on track, um, you're making that initial choice, recognizing that it's the right one and knowing that your future self might not make the right choice. So you'll have someone else to help keep you on that right path. But anyway, the book Hard to Break by Russell Poldrack uh, gets really into the nitty gritty of the neuroscience of understanding habits. And as many of the books on habits that I've read, it seems that willpower and self-control are not the things we should be looking at, but things like the cues and the environments, the triggers, um, those can be much more meaningful. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. So tonight was talking about the book Hard to Break by Russell A. Poldrack about habits and what can make them uh, so hard to break and why they stick so much because of our brain and how habits are formed and how there's a lot of good in that, but obviously like lots of things, they can backfire or they can hurt us as well. And I wanted to end this show tonight looking at habits from, this is more about the individuals, although he talks about at the end of the book, globally. Um, it's interesting now, I mean, for the last year or so, a lot of the books I'm reading, they talk about COVID at the end because when COVID first started, you know, publishing a book takes months. I mean, well, to write it and publish it takes years usually, but even that publishing part, once it's written, is going to take at least months. 
And so for most at the beginning of COVID, none of the books could mention COVID because they were written too late. But now most of the books, if I'm reading that are new, almost always the last chapter has something about COVID and how it's you know related to the topic of the book. And so he talked about how there are some global or group types of habit changing that we need to do. Also, he talked about uh, climate change um, as well. But the majority of the book was on individual habits. And so that's very important. But for me, I wanted to talk now in this last segment about relationship habits, because every relationship has what we can also call a culture. And within that or part, big part of that are the habits of that relationship. So what does that mean for a relationship to have a culture? Usually when we think of the word culture, we think of things like countries or ethnicities or race that might have a certain culture, Iranian culture, American culture, English culture, German culture. And so we tend to think of it in that way, thinking it has to be from a big group or nationality, something like that. But really culture means a set of customs and ways of doing things. Values are embedded in culture, things about what's the right way of living, wrong ways of living, um, and customs can be part of it, things that you do on a regular basis. So every business, you know, sometimes you'll hear about what's the culture like at this business, because every culture does have a business. And also families have a culture. And on top of that, or within that also, the relationships, each one can have a culture, but especially between romantic partners, you create a culture together that is what our relationship is like. What do we do and what we don't do? What types of activities do we do together? What kinds of things don't we do? How do we talk about things or not talk about things? And so like habits, we have to consider that the culture and within that the habits of the relationship, once they are formed, they are very hard to break. Once you have a set way that you do things and don't do certain things, it can be much harder to break than it is to create them. And so when you are starting a relationship, what I think it's good to keep in mind when you're dating is assume this person is going to be your long-term partner. Now, of course, this first means you're dating to create a long-term relationship. If you're not, hey, have your fun, do whatever it is you're doing. But if you're dating to create a long-term relationship, that's where you are in your life and your mindset, then go in with the assumption that this person can become my future partner. Now, this doesn't mean assume definitely you're going to be with this person. When I deal with people in therapy, uh, of course, there's a spectrum on almost everything. There are some people that are too not excited about the first date. They're already assuming it's going to go bad and, oh, I'm going to be disappointed again, a waste of time. I don't even know why I'm doing this, which can be a defense in a lot of ways to they don't possibly want to get close at all. Of course, they don't want to get their hopes up, but they might not want to even get close. So they'd rather ruin it before it starts. So there's there, those people, but then there's people on the other end of the spectrum that go into a first date already creating so much. What if he or she becomes my husband or wife? What would our life look like? And they go too far ahead in that way and get too excited, which means they can definitely get let down if things don't work, but maybe even worse than that, they might not look as objectively at what's going on. They've already gone too far ahead. 
So I'll sometimes work with clients. I'll say, okay, it seems like you like this person, but you one date like them or two date like, like them, meaning that you like them as much as you can like someone in two dates, let's say, or whatever that potential is, let's say 97% or 98%, which is good, but it's only two dates liking someone, which means we can't go ahead. And that's another way that we avoid the anxiety of dating. We can either ruin it to before it even starts, or we can already assume it's the real thing. People have a hard time, of course, waiting and waiting to see what's going to happen and what unfolds. So we want to get to a conclusion. Either it's definitely not going to work or this is the one. And after a few dates, you can't know. You have to keep on dating and waiting to see what's there. But what I mean is that when you start to date someone, recognizing that because they can turn into your long-term partner, potentially, I don't want to start with behaviors that I wouldn't want to be part of our relationship or relationship that I am in. So when you're, let's say, starting to talk to me, whatever principles or values are important to you, keep them from the beginning. A big one that comes up in dating in general and relationships in general, but especially when we look at the beginning of dating is honesty and being truthful. Sometimes people think, well, I don't know this person yet. Even I've heard people say, do I owe them to tell them the truth? And when you tell someone the truth, you hopefully aren't doing it for them. You're doing it for yourself because you want to say what is truthful and honest and not to lie about something. So it's not about them deserving something from you or you owe them something. That desire to be honest is hopefully something that you intend to do from yourself. And so the reason why this can be important is, well, people say, oh, right now it's just this person I went out with once, or let's say we've had one date, I'll make something up. Or um, if I'm going on a date with someone else, I'll say I'm with family or, you know, I'll make up something, even though it's okay for me to date someone else, I don't want to say it to them. But unfortunately, I've experienced things where down the line, they find out about this lie that was said early in dating, And now it has a huge negative impact on the trust of the relationship because now it's like, oh, if you lied to me about that, what else have you lied to me about? Or how do I know you're telling me the truth about other things? And so this can start to become embedded into the culture of the relationship that we don't always tell the truth or maybe we are lying to one another about something. So we want to be careful that when we are creating this relationship again it hasn't become even a relationship yet what are the actions that we're taking is this a type of relationship i want this value or this type of a behavior we want to keep that in mind when you're even just starting the relationship so this of course would be a strong argument against playing games which i know many people think is uh, something you have to do or something that's important to do but I think it's very much not helpful in creating a strong relationship to begin by playing games, meaning you're not being honest or truthful with your intentions or actions. Or one of the things that people do when they're playing games all the time is to not do something they say they're going to do or to be wishy-washy about certain things. And so again, ask yourself, is this what I want to be the culture of my relationship in my long-term relationship? If not, I would recommend against doing those types of behaviors. And now as the relationship starts to build, hopefully there's other things you'll think about when you are creating this culture of the relationship. A big one for me, um, it usually doesn't show up till a little bit later because 
bigger emotions are involved, the fights are getting a little more intense, is disrespect. Uh, disrespect is poison for any kind of relationship. It just is negative. It's not, oh, we're passionate. No, passion doesn't mean you have to ever disrespect someone. Passion means you care strongly about someone. If you care strongly about someone, you would think that means you strongly don't want to hurt them if you care about them. That type of a passion is more about just wanting to express your feelings in whatever way feels right to you or something from your past. So passion does not mean ever disrespecting your partner. And I think, unfortunately, some people fool themselves in this way by saying that, oh, it's because we're so passionate that we do such mean things to each other. Or true love is not true love unless it has these types of elements to it, which is not at all the case. So disrespect is something that even in small doses is going to be toxic to a relationship. And unfortunately, when you see couples and you talk to them about how they fight, you can see that sometimes they cross certain lines. And once they cross those lines, it becomes fair play in their fight. So once they've said certain words to each other that I can't say on the air, well, then it becomes okay to say those during the fight. Or one person says it and the other one will start to say it too because like, well, if you're fighting that dirty, I'll fight that dirty as well. And it reminds you of something my cousin Farshid, I remember years ago, I saw him actually this weekend. Um, he was, he told me once, you know, when you, when you cross the line, it's not that you've crossed the line, now you've moved the line of what's okay. So it's not like, oh, you crossed the line and now you go back. Usually, unfortunately, you cross a line, you do something you hadn't done in a relationship or you hadn't done in general. And now that becomes part of the behavior you're okay with. So yeah, we yell these things at each other now because that's where the line has been moved to. So you have to be careful about these things because once they become habits and part of the culture of the relationship, they will be very, very hard to break and hard to change. You just expect that. And actually you'll see sometimes people will bring the culture from their previous relationship into the new one. It might be part of who they are in general, how they are in general, but sometimes they'll come into a new relationship like, oh, that's how I would fight with my ex. And now I'm doing that here when it's something totally not okay. So we want to be intentional about the formation of this culture because it can be so hard to break. So disrespect is important within that is how we fight. How do we talk about things? How do we express our feelings? How do we deal with it? Do we, you know, have a fight and someone storms and leaves for three days? Or do we talk about it? Maybe we give each other some space, but we even communicate about that and then we work on things. So you want to be very intentional about how you create this culture of your relationship because it can make or break the relationship but also make or break how you feel within that relationship. And I've worked with couples that have, I've seen the culture could be lots of things. Some is about the, the bad fighting. Some is about not talking about things. So in many couples, it's like, well, we they might not say this. Of course, it's going to be unspoken, but we just don't talk about our feelings or we don't talk about our sex life or talk about something that bothers us. Or if something happened in the past, we can no longer bring it up. And so I'd hope you create a culture where there is an openness in your relationship, where you can talk about things. We're actually, even if it's uncomfortable, we encourage each other to bring things up. I don't want you to hold on to something and not tell me, I would rather you tell me even if in the moment it doesn't feel good. So you can make that culture something that involves openness. 
And now although culture and these habits are hard to change, I've been fortunate to work with couples where I have helped them through their hard work to change the culture in the relationship. So I don't want to say once the culture is formed, you can't change it at all. But as always, it's easier to build something strong than to repair something broken, like that Frederick Douglass quote about um, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. It's easier to build something strong than to repair something once it's been damaged or built in the wrong way. But please don't give up on your yourself and your relationship if you find yourself in that situation. But know that it's going to be tough. Habits die hard and they can come back if you're not careful or in time they likely do unless you consistently work at it. And so I'd highly recommend if you're creating a relationship to think very carefully and strongly about what kind of relationship you'd like to have and to make sure you put those qualities and values into the relationship and even communicate it to the other person that this is something you're intentionally doing to make sure you you create something that's healthy and strong for the duration of your relationship. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Razale in the studio, who's here in place of Amir, who couldn't make it tonight. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Dawakwi. Have a wonderful night.